we made, took extra care to sign more contracts with more potential vaccine makers than most of our allies. Pfizer has let us down uh, tremendously. It's, un again, unacceptable. This government waits until things are on fire, until they act, and I think Canadians have had enough. Confusion reigns during the first months of the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. Today on Context, Minister of International Development Karina Gould talks about Canada's role in the global distribution. Dr. Matthew Miller weighs in on the efficacy of the vaccine and Dr. Shannon McDonald talks about the plight of vaccinating Indigenous peoples. Plus, nurses against lockdowns are steadfast in getting their controversial voices heard about how they say lockdowns are causing more harm than good. And our multi-faith panel gives us insight into how their communities are dealing with the vaccine. And we'll speak with one lucky nurse named Lucky, who's had both of his shots already. But first, here's Maggie John with Minister Karina Gould about a recent report that Canada is hoarding the vaccine. Are we hoarding the vaccine? Well, Maggie, as you know, uh, Canada obviously is trying to ensure that we get vaccines for Canadians. That's our top priority. Um, but we don't have, you know, vaccines that are hiding somewhere in a closet. I mean, the rollout ha began in December and it's continuing, uh, you know, as we speak. Uh, but, you know, there is a, a global scarcity issue right now. And Canada, right from the very beginning, has endeavored to both vaccinate Canadians as well as people around the world. And so as part of that, we have contributed substantially. We're the second largest contributor to the COVAX AMC facility, which is providing vaccines for developing countries. I, in fact, am uh, the co-chair of the engagement group to make sure that we're doing this in an equitable uh, fashion uh, and really, you know, calling on the world to make sure that, you know, we make sure that everyone right around the world has equitable access to the vaccine. Let's talk about that a little bit more. What is Canada doing specifically to assist uh, countries that aren't able to secure enough COVID-19 vac COVID vaccines for their citizens? Yeah, so as I mentioned, there is a multilateral uh, mechanism called the COVAX facility, which basically is trying to procure vaccines for the world. So there are two uh, kind of mechanisms in it. One is for self-financing countries like Canada. So we're a member of that to get vaccines for Canadians. But then there's also the AMC, the advanced market commitment uh, section, which is for developing countries who wouldn't be able to buy vaccines on their own. And so we have also made a donation to COVAX of $220 million to support the procurement of vaccines for uh, developing countries. And then we are also working uh, with developing countries and the COVAX facility to make sure that you know, COVAX is procuring those vaccines and they're being distributed. COVAX aims to vaccinate 20% of all of their member countries in 2021. Uh, and then we have also helped create and are funding a mechanism within COVAX to exchange or donate excess vaccines. So the prime minister has committed that if we get into a place where we have excess vaccines or a surplus of vaccines in Canada, that we would donate those vaccines to the developing world. Now, with our own vaccine supply running low, some might wonder why are we even talking about donating money or uh, vaccines in the future to other countries when we are currently struggling with our own uh, amount of vaccines? What would you say to that, Minister Gould? 
Well, so what we know is that COVID-19 is a global pandemic. And so we need to fight COVID everywhere in the world to make sure that we're safe. You know, when Canadians are thinking about getting back to normal, obviously they want these restrictions lifted, but they're also thinking about travel. They're thinking about business. They're thinking about visiting friends and family either abroad or having them come here to visit. And, you know, if COVID-19 is raging in other parts of the world, but we're all vaccinated here in Canada, some of those restrictions are going to be continuing. So really, you know, in order for Canada to both, you know, prosper, we're a trading nation, but also to do the things that we want to do socially and for leisure, uh, we need to make sure that, you know, the whole world uh, really is having COVID under control. Uh, some of the politicians in South Africa have warned against vaccine apartheid and chasms of inequality when it comes to access to vaccines by developing countries. Is that a fair concern? Well, that's why COVAX was set up in the first place, because we wanted to try to avoid a situation where you have some wealthier countries that are getting vaccinated and developing countries are left behind. And so it's the first time that the world is trying to do something like this. And, you know, we are very much supporting it because we believe that, you know, everyone in the world should have access to a vaccine. And that's why, you know, the prime minister and myself are so engaged in uh, equitable access and the COVAX facility. Um, and, you know, we're seeing COVAX does have, you know, deals with companies like AstraZeneca or Novavax, the Serum Institute of India. And so as those vaccines come online, they will begin distribution in the developing world because we really do want to make sure that no matter where you live, no matter what the income situation of your country is, that you will have access to a vaccine. And how do you decide when on a global scale, how do you decide what countries uh, get the vaccine uh, before others? How, who makes that decision? And that's a hard decision to make. Yeah, so the idea really with the COVAX facility is that um, you know the 20% would roll out by the end of 2021, but the countries would receive allocations um, you know, on a per capita basis. So if there's you know, a million vaccines that are available for COVAX, those million vaccines would be distributed to all of the countries. Each country has to have a vaccine readiness plan as well, because the one thing that we want to ensure is that you know, no dose goes wasted. And so really making sure that countries have the infrastructure and the resources um, and the logistical support so that they can actually deliver those vaccines is important. And Canada's actually um, supporting the WHO um, and other organizations like Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance, to make sure that countries have the support that they need to not just have the vaccines, but to actually vaccinate people. And refugees, you know, among the most vulnerable populations globally, how are wealthy countries making sure that refugees are also getting vaccines? Yeah, so each country will be deciding, uh, you know, who gets vaccines in their country. We've already seen Jordan, though, for example, start vaccinating refugees in Jordan. Um, and so, you know, we've been very supportive and vocal, um, you know, about this is, is a good thing here in Canada, for example. Um, you know, if you're a Canadian who's eligible for the vaccine, you you will get it. Uh, or if you live in this country, you will, you will get it um, as, you know, the priorities roll out. Um, but much like you know here in Canada we have a priority list so too does the WHO which they're providing to countries. All right Minister Gould thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for your interest.
Many medical experts claim vaccines take upward of five to seven years to manufacture and ensure that vaccines are effective. Our next guest is here to answer some of our questions about vaccines and more. Dr. Matthew Miller is an associate professor in biomedical sciences at McMaster University. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Miller. What do you say about the claim that vaccines take five to 10 years to be properly developed and tested while the COVID-19 vaccine took mere months, less than a year to be manufactured. Can we trust it? Yeah, so actually the COVID vaccine was able to be developed so rapidly because the technology behind mRNA vaccines has actually been in development for, for well over 10 years. So the speed at which the specific COVID vaccines were developed doesn't really reflect the total developmental timeline, just a repurposing of an existing platform specific to the to the current virus. Okay, good to know. We also hear a lot about herd immunity. What will it take to achieve herd, herd immunity in Canada? Well, the ability to achieve herd immunity really depends on how transmissible the virus is. And based on what we know about the transmissibility of SARS-CoV-2, it's probable that we'll, we'll be able to see herd effects in Canada as soon as around 70% of the population uh, becomes immune. So, so that immunity can be reached, obviously, by a combination of people who have already been infected, as well as those who will get the vaccine. Okay, we've also heard about side effects. A few people have had some side effects when it comes to the vaccine. What are you hearing? What are some of those side effects that maybe some of us will experience once we get the vaccine? Well, the common side effects associated with the COVID vaccines uh, are, are very, very similar to the side effects that we're used to experiencing with almost any vaccine. Uh, these include things like pain and swelling at the injection site, um, muscle soreness, uh, sometimes chills or very rarely a, a very short-lived fever. Um, those are essentially uh, what, what people most commonly experience when they get the, the COVID vaccine. And those um, side effects tend to happen more frequently after the second shot than after the first shot. And really what that means is just that your immune system is responding to the vaccine the way that we would hope for it to. Okay, so it's it's quite normal then to have these slight side effects. Absolutely, it's it's extremely common and very normal to see these these sort of low grade um, side effects after receiving the vaccine. Okay, in in a moment we'll be speaking with a doctor who works with First Nations in BC, and we've heard many reports about Indigenous and racialized communities not trusting the vaccine and not being protected as many of them work uh, in frontline uh, jobs. What would you say to these Canadians who might be concerned or weary about the vaccine? Well, I think that the, the safety data uh, accumulated for these vaccines has been very robust. The, the enhanced timeline for the approval of these vaccines didn't compromise in any way the way that the safety data um, uh, was gathered and evaluated. And the data is very clear that the, the relatively minimal adverse effects that are associated with the vaccine itself certainly pale in comparison to the, to the very severe potential outcomes associated with infection itself. And so 
the benefits of this vaccine, of course, are not only does it provide the individual, but but that individual then also uh, protects those people around them. And for frontline workers, um, protecting their their vulnerable patient populations is absolutely essential. All right, Dr. Matthew Miller, uh, Associate Professor in Biomedical Sciences at McMaster University. Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Our voices will not be silenced. Woo! Woo! The vaccine rollout is not the only thing to run up against roadblocks. ER doctor Brooke Fallis of the William Osler Hospital told media he was sacked for criticizing the government's handling of the pandemic. And the Globe and Mail reports tens of thousands of nursing jobs remain unfulfilled across the country. In fact, job postings for nurses is up nearly 50%. And some nurses across Canada are seeing things they don't agree with and they're speaking out about it. But that's not being well received by some hospitals. NICU nurse Kristen Nagel and long-term care nurse Sarah Shishunian are members of Nurses Against Lockdown. Context producer Christine Yu spoke with both nurses. You've been on the front lines in the nursing care community. Uh, what led you to start Nurses Against Lockdowns? Well, I really hate to see what's going on with my residents. They've been isolated and we know that isolation is just as bad as stress for the um, overall health. And so that was a big concern for me. Uh, we're not letting families in. I think that's, that's detrimental to them. They're there, that's their last stop. And that's all they have is their loved ones. And so that's what keeps them alive. So a lot of them are, uh, have failure to thrive. They're giving up. Uh, they're dying alone of broken hearts. And so to me, that's devastating. And also to see overall what the lockdowns are doing. Um, I have anxiety. So, um, and, and, you know, I have mental health issues and I, and I love helping other people because I've overcome so much of my trauma, um, been helping others. And to see what this is doing to, to people, it's just devastating. When it comes to the deployment of the vaccine and, and the prime minister has said it, and we'll keep saying it again, First Nations have to be properly served by a first-class medical system that has underserved them historically. My next guest is the acting chief medical officer at the First Nations Authority in British Columbia and says there is not enough being done to protect her community. Thank you so much, Dr. Shannon McDonald, for joining us today. Good morning and thank you. So BC has allocated 25,000 doses of the COVID-19 vaccine to First Nations for distribution by the end of February. How is that going and is it enough in your eyes? We don't have that much yet. Um, a combination of what we've received directly and what we've received through partnership with regional health authorities is only at about mm, a little over 11,000. So there's still more to come, absolutely. And we have plans for that. Um, but right now there is a extreme vaccine shortage in the province and we're waiting for our next allotment. Okay. Well, according to reports, First Nations in BC are being hit the hardest in Western Canada when it comes to COVID. Why do you think that is? I mean, there are some reports and, and blame on outside traffic coming through the reserves. Is there more to this story? I don't know if this is about blame. Uh, COVID is everywhere. It's endemic. Um, and anybody that is going on and off reserve for work, for to get fill up the tank of gas to get groceries, um, there is always an opportunity, negatively spoken, um, of 
having the, the virus transmitted, it's very difficult and, and probably not okay to be pointing fingers. We're already seeing some of the um, more racist tinged uh, comments coming from mm. surrounding communities who really believe that it's First Nations that are infecting them. And in reality, everybody is at risk. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about those racial tones that are being positioned towards First Nations communities, uh, how are how are members of the communities responding to that? When again, as you said, there shouldn't be blame at this point. It's always difficult. And I think the most common thing I hear is that there have always been uh, people who are inclined to, to think in a racist way and that these mm -hmm. Circumstances may bring the opportunity for them to express that openly in a more safe way. Um, but it, it's sad and it's hurtful um, and it, it makes it difficult to, to be good neighbors. Mm. Who do you worry about the most in your community when it comes to this vicious virus spreading? Definitely the elders. Um, they are our walking, breathing libraries. They're the language holders, the knowledge keepers, um, those that have lived through many of the things before that have challenged First Nations and, and they are the survivors. Um, so it is their stories and their experience and their knowledge that are so valuable to communities and they are significantly at risk. All right, Dr. Shannon McDonald, Acting Chief Medical Officer at the First Nations Authority in British Columbia. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Maggie. Coming up on The queue, we meet with Rabbi Jordan Cohen and Raheel Raza to discuss what different faith communities have to say about the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Like to watch more context beyond the headlines? Catch up on any of our shows online. On YouTube, search Context Beyond the Headlines for the most up-to-date episodes and extended content. Listen on the go with Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Check out our reporters' and producers' stories at our website, context.show. Follow us on Instagram at Context Beyond the Headlines and Twitter at Context TV. There are so many ways to put more context into your life. Everything that they're they're doing, public health um, mandates and, you know, these government um, rules. I mean, the government didn't even follow their own policies. In Manitoba, they came right out and said that, that government um, officials don't have to follow these, like, public policies. Why? Um, you know, we've been calling it the year of the hypocrites. So what's with all these loopholes and contradictions? How and why were you both fired? Okay, well, I was fired uh, from, an, from my first job. I was fired from two jobs now. Uh, my first job was a nursing home job. And um, I posted some of, I had to vent uh, about some of the stuff that was happening that I thought was wrong. And so I went online in a private group and uh, vented and someone took a picture, found my employer, called them and I was terminated. And the second job, then I, I, I went into the, to work in the, into the community because I already had two jobs. And, um, but coming back from our health and freedom summit in Washington, um, I was terminated from that job too. And so that's my, that's my story. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I had been reprimanded from speaking up from organizing the Freedom Rally in, in London and back in November. And then that led to, um, you know, going against the narrative because we're, we're, not, we're not supposed to, that we're being told we're supposed to, you know, we were taught to be critical thinkers in nursing school, but only if that meant going along with uh, what we're being told. So, um, yeah, so I was uh, terminated officially upon arriving home from D.C. as well. We go now to Context executive producer Susan Ponting, who speaks with one of the first nurses in Canada to receive both vaccines. And he's become somewhat of a celebrity on the front lines. Here's Susan with Lucky's story. Hey, thanks, Maggie. So I'm here with Lucky Aguila. And uh, what a story Lucky has. So Lucky, welcome. Thanks for uh, being with us. We're in this wonderful little greenhouse tent trying to stay warm. Thank you for having me. You got the shots, both shots? Yes. You were all over the TV, radio, everything. How did that feel? After I got this first shot, um, it's just a little bit soreness on the site. Uh, feeling tired and sleepy. That was my like side effects. And then when I got the second dose, uh, 21 days after, um, it's just soreness. You work at the Rakai Centre where it's mostly long-term care patients, which is, uh, you know, really a brave job for you and you do such a great job. We wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't get through this without people like you. It's hard on the uh, residents as well. It's hard because um, they're isolated, they're in their, uh, they can't see their family, um, they aren't able to interact with each other because we have to do social distancing. So we try to accommodate for like Zoom meetings and phone calls, so um, activities so we can give them like uplift their spirit. You're vaccinated, do you feel better or you feel like much more protected? Yeah, I feel like um, I had the opportunity to um, take part of um, something that can potentially end transmission of the virus. So I feel like I'm doing uh, my part as a nurse protecting residents that I care for, my co-workers, and my family. Your mom and dad named you Lucky, uh, and you are awfully lucky. How does your faith inform you in this journey? As a Christian, um, I think it's part of my role as to be able to um, inspire other people to take part of um, finally ending the spread of the COVID. Again, it depends on the person if they want to do it. But for me, I decided to do it so I can just, for my uh, residents, uh, coworkers, and my family members to be more protected. And so your faith is in God and in the science and in the doctors all, and nurses and yeah. knowing that you're okay, you're taken care mm -hmm. of. Thanks for doing what you do Thank as you. a brave uh, frontline worker. Really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Like to watch more context beyond the headlines? Catch up on any of our shows online. On YouTube, search Context Beyond the Headlines for the most up-to-date episodes and extended content. Listen on the go with Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Check out our reporters' and producers' stories at our website, context.show. Follow us on Instagram at Context Beyond the Headlines and Twitter at Context TV. There are so many ways to put more context into your life. Coming up on The queue, leaders from different faith communities discuss the impact of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout.
Time now for the queue, an opportunity to hear different points of view on the news issue of the day. So how are religious communities responding to the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine? To give us some perspective, I'm joined by Rabbi Jordan Cohen and Raheel Raza. Thank you both for joining us today. Pleasure. So let's start uh, here. Does your religion influence your decision on if you will get vaccinated, Raheel? What are your thoughts? Well, I don't uh, look to religion when it's uh, something that has to do with science, although I am a practicing observant Muslim. But my religion, if I did look at it, tells me that when there is a need for life or death, you go with what is important for your health. However, I have to tell you that we know when there's something new like this, there are always, uh, you know, people who are, uh, I would say, off the bat in terms of religiosity. So in Pakistan, the country I come from, there were all sorts of rumors flying that the vaccine contains pig fat and, you know, Muslims don't mm. eat pig fat and then it would make people sterile and that it was injecting live animal DNA into people. So there has been a huge, massive uh, wrong information campaign. So in these countries, I would say third world countries, there have to be two campaigns, one an education campaign to tell people what it is and then to introduce the vaccine. I mean, Pakistan is one of the few countries in the world where still has polio because the poll, the, uh, again, there were rumors about it. And the people who were there giving the polio shots, they were shot and killed because wow. it was considered that they were doing something wrong. And this was all, by the way, through religious fanaticism. Yeah, a lot of so, misinformation. Yeah, a lot of misinformation. So it's important as people of faith to separate this kind of controversy and, you know, all sorts of uh, these um, issues that, that, you know, come out of nowhere to separate that from the real stuff. You know, life is important. We have to preserve life. And if for that, if there is medicine and science, we need to make the best use of it. Yeah. Rabbi Cohen, what does your faith say about getting vaccinated? For our tradition, it's 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 a non-debated issue. It's a no-brainer. I mean, it fits into every single major Jewish value, which talks about the primacy of life, the saving of life, not only the health and well-being of ourselves, which is a religious imperative. You can't serve God if you are sick or ill, but also caring for others in the community, which is a, a major value. So, you know, we don't make a distinction between science and faith or science and religion. I mean, science is a tool, a means that God uses to provide healing to the people. So even within our community, under the most uh, traditional or fundamentalist sects within our Jewish community, uh, everybody is pretty united um, that uh, using the vaccine to maintain personal and communal health is a religious, actual religious imperative. And so high is this value that even if getting vaccinated violates some of the other religious principles, especially something like the Sabbath. If getting, if a vaccine is available to you only to be administered on the Sabbath, it is so important that you do so, that it's actually permissible to violate the Sabbath in order to get the vaccine. Raheel had um, alluded to some of the misinformation that's happening in, in certain communities. Have you seen that, Rabbi Cohen? Have you had to talk to maybe parishioners, people in your community, about fear of the vaccine or just not enough information? Um, within my own sphere of the community, not really. I come from the liberal end of the tradition, and there's really been no better discussion. I mean, any discussion around the vaccine in our community is why is it not being administered faster? Why isn't being available faster? But even in the more traditional 
aspects of the community um, there where there's uh, issues around uh, uh, closures and not being able to gather, that's an issue, but the vaccine itself is not a debated issue. All right, well, thank you so much, both of you, for being part of the queue today. Again, Rahil Raza and Rabbi Jordan Cohen. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you all for watching. We couldn't do this program without our amazing team behind the scenes or you, our donors, who help ensure Christian analysis on the news and current events is part of the media spectrum. If you want to find out more about Context, go to our website, context.show. For all of us here, I'm Maggie John. Thanks for watching.